Okay, we'll go ahead and get started. Hi, everybody. Um, this is the case discussion. A lot of you, how many of you, this is your first Ryan White Clinical Conference? All right, welcome, bravo. Yeah, welcome. It's good to have you. And for those of you who have been um, here before, you know that what I typically do are antiretroviral therapy cases with discussion from a panel. And these are questions that I get in, in our clinic and from around the country, people might phone or whatever with a question. And I synthesize these in to try to see what we're dealing with in common scenarios. What's interesting is because I've done this so often, the questions are often the same as you might've heard before, but the answers are changing. And so that kind of makes it interesting. And to, to make the best use of our time, I've got the iPad up here. So if you have a question as we're going, send it on in and I can go in real time. That's one advantage of this technology. Um, we're also gonna have uh, responses from you as we go through. So be ready to answer questions. There's about uh, eight or 10 of them as we go and we'll get through this. Um, so we have 55 minutes on the clock now, 54.04. So we'll quickly go down and introduce, I'm Mike Sag from UAB. I work at the 1917 clinic, Steve. Yeah, Steve Johnson from the University of Colorado. Jill Blumenthal, CMU has that. Jill Blumenthal, UC San Diego, uh, the Owen Clinic. I, you all yeah. already met me, so. <laughs> right. Judy Levison, OBGYN at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Previews of coming attractions. Jason Farley, Johns Hopkins. Beautiful. All right, let's get going. So disclosures are usually first. Let's see if we get this cooking. Yeah, there we go. You can, again, um, the learning objectives, we're going to go through a bunch of things. You can look at that on your own. So I organize this by the question and then present a case. So this orients you to where we're headed. So it's like we're we playing baseball, football, or soccer. What initial therapy should I use? So this is about a 48-year-old guy who presents newly diagnosed. His initial HIV RNA is 280,000, CD4 counts 64, although the labs are normal. You actually have your genotype back already. It's wild type. No past medical history to speak of, normal renal function. He's ready to start therapy. So which of these regimens would you use? And the X means either TAF or TDF or FTC or 3TC. So you can pick your poison there. And uh, then I think the rest is self-explanatory. Let's go ahead and vote. And I would have music normally, but we don't have music. So I'll think of a song and like, I want a new drug. How's that? Huey Lewis in the news and you can play it to yourself. Uh, yeah. Okay. And no, I'm not going to sing. I could sing. All right. Let's see where we are. All right. So the majority of folks went with answer a hundred percent. That's important. Oh, it's not worth. Oh, one person. Well, the one person who voted, please stand up. Or Slim Shady, please stand up. Oh, uh, one person. Okay, we'll keep going. Let's just talk Ten about people. the answer. So, how, who on the panel would have used uh, the Big Tegravir? It looks like Jill, you've got your green light on. Yeah, we'll, that's go ahead. usually what I start with. It is easy. It is. Um, you know, small, discrete, very few side effects. I actually am surprised you had a genotype back. Um, usually we'll start um, TAF FTC, big, big Tegravir without even having a genotype back. So, yeah. Judy? Yeah. 
Yeah, you agree. Who wants to take one of the other options? How about uh, uh, the TXF XTC Dolutegravir? Steve. Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, close to equivalent, but uh, you know, I think there is something a little magical about single tablet regimens. And then the two drug regimen, we weren't provided enough information. Uh, Dr. Spock men mentioned yesterday about hepatitis B and things like that. Right, Connie. So my only caveat with the Victegravir regimen was if I was uh, in a setting where I had to be concerned about treating somebody for tuberculosis. Yeah, and, and go into that a little more because we probably won't cover that. So you're worried about drug interactions and which would be the better choice in that setting? The Dolutegravir regimens. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah, Jason, what do you think? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I would just offer, offer the caveat that um, Virola was greater than 100,000, so Abacavir would be kind of off the table anyway. Yep, and I think we're sort of leaning, as opposed to 10 years ago, maybe 12, uh, I think we're sort of having other options than Abacavir. What about just the Dolutegravir 3TC? There's no mutations, the viral load's less than um, 500,000, the CD4 count is higher. Um, anybody? think that's something worth doing? We, we've I, used that a fair amount, yeah. I think until I know a patient a little bit better, sometimes I wanna make sure that I do indeed have, um, you know, a, a higher barrier to resistance and, and choosing that just may be a little bit more nerve wracking in someone you don't know. Yeah, if, if we think the person's gonna be uh, taking their medicines regularly, there's no M184B baseline, that's the key thing, or hepatitis B. You can't use the Dolutegravir 3TC because the 3TC will become resistant. Okay, I think we've covered that, let's move on. One uh, thing that's new that you may not know about, the ISUSA has published these drug resistance mutations for several decades now, and this is a new release as of about two weeks ago. So you can go to the website and download that. For the Slido to work, you've got to re-sign re in uh, using new code. Let's see. Ah, there it is. All right, so let's everybody take about a 30 second break to Slido in. I always thought of this as sluggo. Does anybody remember that from the Nancy uh, cartoons from the, yeah, you're showing that you were born sometime in the 1960s, if you know about sluggo. So let's go ahead and QR code in. Mike, the one thing that I would add is the F option of cabotegravirol pivrine every eight weeks. Yeah. Um, that is now becoming something that people, you know, even naive um, are interested in, in starting right away as opposed to having to go on oral yeah. medications. And, and, and you want to use it uh, monthly for the first two injections, and then you can stretch it out, right? And there's been some discussion, might as well get into this while people are slidoing. Um, what if somebody's very obese? Do you do every two months or one month? <laughs> yeah. Jason, what do you think? So I think the data suggests that there could be an impact uh, in someone who's very large, but ultimately it has not panned out that it would cause a therapeutic deficit. 
Right. So I think that's we're waiting for a little bit more data. If you're if you're wondering about that, it's just a PK issue of whether there's a tail. That is the the, the drug levels start to drop because of volume of distribution. And I think you just may want to have that discussion uh, as we go through. Okay. And then the other thing I want to mention, because it's one of your pretest questions, is that with cobisystat and with any uh, integrase inhibitor, you will see about a 0.1 milligram per deciliter increase in serum creatinine like that. And you say, well, what is that? Is that GFR? No, it is not. Something that I didn't learn in medical school because it wasn't discovered at that time was the notion of, of uh, enzymes uh, proteins in the proximal tubule that are responsible for moving creatinine from the bloodstream into the urine. It only does a little bit. And so GFR, true GFR is actually estimated pretty well with serum creatinine, but it's off by that little bit. So these, uh, these drugs like cobisystat has impact. Um, if you look to the right here, uh, cobisystat interferes with this enzyme called mate one, like matey. So mate one interferes with this excretion of creatinine in the proximal tubule. And OCT2 does it for the, is inhibited by dilutegravir, bictegravir in particular. And I remember that because that's my birthday. So yes, thank you, happy birthday to me. Okay. So what regimen should I use as initial therapy three years from now? So it's a perfect follow-on, I think, to Connie's talk. Um, here's some of the things she talked about. So in over three years, this is again, the same guy, you see him summarized on the right. And would you stick with the standards that we were choosing, including the cabotegravir, or would you might go with assuming lislatrovir and linocaprovir are out, or maybe some uh, broadly neutralizing antibody or an implantable, maybe you can put something in under the skin like progesterone has been used and uh, maybe it'll last every 12 months. This is hypothetical, let's go ahead and vote. I guess this is where I need a new drug. So we're back to Huey Lewis. If you remember back to the future, uh, so we'll ask Doc Brown and Marty McFly to weigh in here. Uh, and let's see if Slido's Slidoing. Oh boy, yeah, we got some, yeah. <laughs> hey, you, we can be taught. Um, so most people are you know, gonna pull a George Herbert Walker Bush and not gonna change, not gonna debt, gonna stay the course. Um, but how about, how about Connie, what would you, what would you do here? Well, I'm kind of intrigued by the whole concept of implantable antiretrovirals. I probably, I don't know if it'll be three years that we'll have enough data to make us feel comfortable about that, but, but I like that potential option. And I also like the, the sub Q six months off. It, it is kind of intriguing though, isn't it? Because we have proof of concept that injections right. sort of overcome people missing doses and implantable, unless they explant it, um, that could be cool. Steve, what do you think? Well, I, I think the cabotegravir ropivirine, you know, there's still a lot of interest in the clinic in this and it's had kind of a slow startup for logistical reasons more than patient interest. So I see that potentially being more common. And then if it, we're talking three years, you know, the, the vexing issue right now in clinical practice with integrase is weight gain. So if there is, you know, if our clinical trials do demonstrate alternative regimens that affect weight gain less, that could also be a, a change. Yeah. 
given that I'm starting many people who are pregnant and newly diagnosed, um, what I would want to know is were pregnant women included in the trials? Because one of our problems to date has been that the OBs are always a little bit behind because we just don't have the data because the drugs are released before um, being tried on pregnant women. Right, and that's always been an issue um, and sort of the pediatric populations as well. Okay, I just thought I'd throw it out there. One of the other advantages, not that I'm really pushing this, just found it intriguing that if you inject a deep IM, then that drug's there, you can't get it out. An implantable can be removed and it might take several days for the drug levels to drop, but at least you have some control over that. All right, this, this question came in yesterday. Um, so I said we'd get to it, so here we go. Seems like we're starting ARV therapy for almost everyone. What about starting for a true, genuine, elite controller? And what I mean by that is this kind of guy. 30-year-old guy diagnosed seven years ago is asymptomatic. His viral load has always been less than 50 off therapy, so much so that you want to confirm and you got a DNA positive like you might do in diagnosing an infant. Um, CD4 count's been stable at 870 for seven years or thereabouts. Everything else is normal. You can see that there's no drug resistance mutations as best you can tell. Um, and it's okay to start therapy if you want to. So are you gonna recommend this for him? Yes, no, maybe go ahead and vote. So this is a bit of a conundrum. Um, trying to think of you know, what would be applicable, uh, maybe, the Schrodinger equation, going back to chemistry, is a probability of him breaking through and, you know, like a electron in an orbital for a weird thought. Okay, two thirds would definitely, it sounds like recommend it, uh, a solid 14%, uh -uh, not gonna do it. Okay, so um, let's see, Jason, what do you think in this setting? So shared decision-making, I would start there because this is someone who's not urgently in need of ARVs. But I tend to weigh on an earlier start because of immune activation issues. Mm -hmm. And we know that despite having viral suppression, you know, if, if we can ultimately, there you go. I read your mind. Um, um, if we can ultimately obtain a, an undetectable viral load less than 20, the lower the viral load we can obtain, the less circulating cytokine activation and, and so on and so forth. And the, ultimately, the better this patient will do in the long run. Yeah. Other thoughts, Steve? Well, I agree with that. I also think this population is a little heterogeneous sometimes. There's true elite controllers, but then there's people with relatively low viral loads that, that still have kind of immune preservation. And I just think it makes sense to offer treatment. I really like the shared decision-making though, since especially yeah. given some of the side effect issues that we're dealing with. So Mike has a very nice slide with some older data, but I, and I can't for the life of me remember where I recently saw it, but there's a, a study in elite controllers looking at T cell activation and it looks just like that. Right. they do have immune activation. Yeah, and, and this is another way of looking at it. This yeah. is more specific data from Peter Hunt years ago, but th that's kind of what drives my thinking. A question from the audience uh, uh, has a patient who's an elite controller, but is on renal dialysis. I wonder out loud whether that was renal failure caused by um, 
HIV, you know, HIV AN is one of the most common causes, and it's usually from the virus replicating in the cells of the kidney. Um, but in that case, it's kind of too late to save his kidney. But um, I think this is the point that there's energy, there's effort that the immune system puts out to keep the virus under control. And in this case, it's working really well. And to me, it raises the question about the quote cure research that's looking for functional cure that in essence is trying to induce a state of immune activation whereby the immune system controls the virus to give people drug-free holiday. I'm not sure that this is a holiday. This is more like a holiday out of Green Day with American Idiot. Yeah. So go ahead, Connor. Maybe I'm misremembering, but did you did you see this? It was a recent article on elite controllers and immune activation, and it actually showed that they had um, mortality rates, long-term mortality rates that were still higher than people who were HIV negative. Right. So even though it was low levels of immune activation, they were still not as well off as people who were not HIV infected. And right. it may be, I, I, maybe I'm misremembering the data, but yeah, yeah and there, there was an older Air Force study, too, that showed that, that elite controllers were more likely to be hospitalized than people on ART and well-controlled. Yeah. So, again, yeah. getting back to that chronic inflammation. So, I, so know, obviously, it's not an urgent decision, and shared decision-making is a, right. a so, critical issue. But So here's a question from the audience. Let's say you've decided you think it's a pretty good idea, uh, all things being equal, but the patient's a little hesitant. Um, Jill, what would you say to that patient to kind of bring them along or what would you do? First of all, language matters. And I really don't want to call these people elite controllers anymore. I think we're trying to use long-term non-progressors. Is, mm -hmm. that, is that correct? Well, elite controller just means that the, the virus is totally undetectable. It's very enough. tough to call someone elite though, and everyone yeah. else is not elite, but I'll, right. I'll work with this. Right. In so. the South, we call them elite. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like you light. Yeah, we call me light um, controllers. Yeah, yeah a, down the block there. I have a handful of patients where this has come up. Um, I think it depends on so many things for them. One person in, that comes to mind is younger and really still can't, no matter how much we try to talk about the future, he can't really see it. And he's, he says, you know, I'm in this now. I don't need it now. He said to me, you know, when you have um, long acting injectables, I'll be on board for that. Came. He's not doing those either. Yeah. So I, I think it depends so much on each person, what they're willing to do. Um, you know, are they, how much are they willing to do? And what side effects are they willing to tolerate? Right. And as we leave this topic, uh, there is one thing that I think Peter Hunt's group and Steve Deeks and others showed was that if you take, we don't use it much anymore, but the CD4 to CD8 ratio, remember that? If you divide it into quintiles, like 20%, 20% across, those who had the lowest CD4 to CD8 ratio among elite, elite controllers, um, they do, they have more early transition to non-elite status. So that's another little trick you could use if you're really on the fence and if they have a very high CD4 to CD8 ratio, you might be okay waiting just epidemiologically, but all right, I think we've um, overstimulated here. Okay, let's go on. How do I manage blips? So this is again, the same guy, just to make it easier. Like most of you, he got started on Vic TAF FTC and he remained undetectable. Um, then suddenly 
we see him back and this is a patient of mine, 91. Then I repeated it in a couple months just to see where it was going. It went up to 185. And then I checked it again about six weeks later and it went up to 220. Is this a blip? What is this? So he claims full adherence and this guy's like an accountant or something. So you kind of believe him. Uh, doesn't do intravenous drugs or anything. Which of the following is most likely the cause? So intermittent adherence, uh, occasional recreational drug he's not telling me about, recent initiation of an MVI, de novo emergence of resistance and interference. Go ahead and vote. Um, let's see, is he lying to me? or not telling, fully revealing the truth. And then that gets like to, uh, you know, a few good men. Can you handle the truth? Maybe he thinks I can't handle it. Okay, let's go ahead and see what we got. All right, so two thirds think it's an MVI as opposed to a, a CVA or something. So what do you all think? Yeah. I already know the answer to this. Sorry. <laughs> I've seen your question oh, before, okay. so, you so have to call on somebody else. I know some of these, yeah. Um, <laughs> so Jason, what do you think? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I tend to want to believe my patients, you know, and I want to believe their stories in right. most instances. So I, I would go with, I think uh, an MVI is possible. Um, it's certainly in this case. Okay. Steve. Yeah, I mean, we kind of, uh, I mean, I'd call this more, uh, low-level viremia than a, than a blip, just kind of given the numbers. But uh, right. I mean, adherence is an issue, resistance is possible. Um, if it's a single value, we worry about laboratory error. Right. And, and we also learned from uh, Silicano at this conference before that a release of virus from latent reservoirs is another cause. But you know, we deal with this a lot in the clinic. I mean, this case is a little different because we, we see the viral load rising, yeah. but uh, we deal a lot with blips and and mostly we're reassuring but if you look at studies of people who blip compared to people who don't blip they do have a higher rate of failure yeah maybe the analogy i should have used was a television show flipper and he would be a blipper but he's not because the blips usually come up and go back down the mvi is a key thing here and I, so i immediately got on the phone and said have you started any new over-the-counter anything and he goes yeah i started this multivitamin roughly about two months before he came in for his visit four months ago. I said, well, do you have it? He said, yeah. I said, why don't you read the ingredients to me? And it had magnesium and it had aluminum and it had a bunch of other divalent cations. And I went, aha. So why don't you stop that? Keep taking your medicine. And fortunately, this little bit of escape did not lead to emergence of uh, integrase inhibitor resistance and he, he resuppressed immediately. So just something to keep your eye on. That's the whole point of that question. I have, so, a, I have a question for you in, in this circumstance. With the new September DHHS guidelines showing that 220 copies needs a genotype, what do you think in that circumstance? Well, if you can get it, I guess that might be okay. I was, my, my strategy here was just to see if he resuppressed, and he did. If he didn't, I would have checked a genotype out of concern. But I think it's the reason why we typically say wait to the viral locus to 500 or 1000 is solely about the assay, right? And there's not, no harm in checking it, just that you often don't amplify 
uh, in the commercial assay, but if you can get it, I, I just went that route, but uh, it's a good point, Jason. Um, how are we gonna manage weight gain? So Roger was gonna be on the panel, but I think folks here have seen this too. And the question is, what do you do about this? So this is a woman who got started on BICTAF FTC and had a lower viral load at baseline, um, came down nicely, CD4 count went up dramatically, but she get also went going up pretty dramatically was her weight. So what are you gonna do here? Um, and I'm trying to think of a politically correct song that would go with this and I'm not even gonna go there. So you have to imagine your own song on this one. Um, but try to, are you gonna keep her on the same regimen, switch her, get her off of the TAF, put her on something non-integrase uh, inhibitor-like, like option F or some other option? Go ahead and vote. All right. So most people, not, it's a big spread here. Um, Jill, what would you do? Well, and that's what the, I mean, the audience is correct. That's what the um, the current DHH, DHHS guidelines show is that you would continue the current regimen. That being said, the person sitting in front of you um, may feel very differently about wanting to continue. I think the first thing you have to do is make sure there's nothing else going on. You know, any big lifestyle changes, um, you know, are, there are a lot of other things that could be going on that you want to make sure that you address. But then, um, you know, the, the two big considerations are both the TAF and the, the integrase inhibitor. And those are both things that you could consider removing um, and, and switching to another regimen, like uh, the D, so TDF, FTC, uh, Yeah. So that's, those are good thoughts. So right now, the data that I'm aware of do not show that once that weight gain has happened, that switching does yet much, but there's an ACTG study that's evaluating, especially, I think it's Durabarine and our co-chair uh, in Dallas uh, is helping to lead that study. Uh, yeah, Judy, you have a comment? No, Connie. I was just gonna say, I think we're going to see some of the longer term switch studies showing some different data. So yeah. it may take a while, but there may be a benefit to switching for people with weight gain. The other thing oh, sorry. I noted about her, well, two points I wanted to make. One is almost every one of these studies that looks at weight gain before we ever had integrated strand transfer inhibitors or TAF people who are treatment naive and start on antiretroviral therapy gain weight. And there's this phenomenon of return to health or stabilizing after you start antiretroviral therapy. And that may be an impact on reducing immune activation and some of the other things that might contribute to lower weight than what might have been the case if they weren't HIV infected. And the other point about Jill already made is that she's a 47 year old woman. She may be going through menopause and there's a, a weight gain that goes along with menopause as well. So there are probably multiple factors why this individual gained so much weight. And right. one of them might've been returned to health. One might've been menopause and then the impact of the integrase yeah. inhibitors. I think the take home point at the end of the day is for everyone when we start therapy, um, 
regardless of what the regimen is, because you can see that all of them, all the regimens are associated with some weight gain over six to 12 months, is to just give everyone the heads up. Just be careful about that and make sure you're monitoring your diet. We want you to get back to feeling well. Um, among the, the integrase inhibitors, uh, the dalutegravir, a little bit more than raltegravir or uh, uh, elvitegravir. Um, but the cool thing to me is that most of that weight gain is in the first several weeks. So that's really the time to be especially mindful um, of the increases. I want to go back to some questions because I had moved on quickly. Um, one question was challenging us a little bit on how are we so sure that antiretroviral therapy really does anything for an elite control? Are we just treating ourselves? Jill? <laughs> sure. Um, maybe, but you showed the you yeah. know really important data, I think, that does suggest it's not just about us, although it does make us feel better. Right. The other thing about all of these studies that's always disturbed me is there's never an HIV uninfected control group right. evaluated over the same, you know, a control group in the same age range over the same period of time. And if you look at curves in the U.S. population yeah. in terms of weight gain, you see fairly dramatic increases over time, depending on where you are in the country. So. Right. And, and I think that's, that's a good point. What, what was really cool was in the PrEP study, right, with cabotegravir, um, there was no difference in weight gain for the uninfected people getting it. Now, there's maybe with more data, we're going to see something, but that was a surprise to me. And if Rafi Landovitz was here, we could get him to expand on that. But that is the closest thing I think we have, uh, Connie, to what you were asking for. Um, one, one comment from the audience I agree with is that once the viral load on a quote blip goes above 200, you got to worry whether it's really not a blip. Usually they're uh, somewhere between 50 and 150, and then they usually come right back down. Yeah, just one other point about the elite controller. That's a fairly uncommon uh, situation, uh, number one, and 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 kind of endpoints that you might use to kind of measure differences are very difficult. So I don't think we're ever going to have kind of the same body of knowledge that we have with other patient populations. Right. One question here also, how much can we really blame on TAF? And I took a slide out. I thought I might have it there, but there is a pretty significant difference when people switch from a non-TAF to a TAF. Now, the question was, it was almost always going TDF to TAF. And some people are saying, well, maybe TDF suppresses appetite a little bit. So you just release them. So it's not 100% clear, but, um, but I think the data are reasonably good. It's not enormous weight gain, but it is significant statistically. Um, so what regimen should I use as initial therapy in a pregnant patient? And we're going to, this is teed up right for Judy. So here we go. 30-year-old woman presents with newly diagnosed HIV six weeks pregnant. Uh, viral load, as you see, CD4. Other labs are normal, B5701 negative, wild type virus, no medical history other than um, her current first pregnancy and is okay to start therapy if you recommend it. So what are you going to recommend? Go ahead and vote and then we're going to have Judy walk us through this.
Okay, let's see what the audience says. Oh, so the audience, for some reason, has jumped all over TAF, FTC, Dogutegravir, and a fixed dose combination. Take it, Judy. And I agree with the majority. All right, and that's our discussion. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Please. Um, I think right now, for somebody who is ARB naive, early pregnancy, as long as she's okay taking two pills, um, and that is definitely worth asking because I give my patients what they will take. And if they're not going to take a big pill or not going to take two pills, right. I'm not going to go there. Um, and similarly with the um, Darunavira option, if somebody we're talking about twice a day, probably doesn't, that's not optimal. So, um, I think the discovitivicate, I will say that I think a year from now or so, we're gonna say um, uh, Bictagravir, but we just don't have that information. And just so people know, the we kind of have a double standard in pregnancy. If you come in on a drug with rare exceptions, we say stay on it. And that's how we get information these days because the pregnant women are not in the clinical trials. That's how we get the information about Hmm, is it safe? Because we have a register, national registry, and a lot of us submit our um, cases to the registry. I'm in the process of filling out our forms for the, our registry. We had a little bit of a glitch, so it's for the last two years, and I would say probably 70% of our, our patients are on Victarvi, come in on Victarvi, or for some reason, we put them on Victarvi in pregnancy. If they're beyond their first trimester, I have no hesitation in using Victarvi. Is that in the guidelines yet? No. So discovitivicate, that, that combo is probably the, uh, I think the most accepted, but these are, the guidelines are guidelines. They are not rules. Yeah. And um, I really think that needs to be emphasized. And so when you see the preferred or an alternative, that's for ART naive, like this patient. But one thing that I really, I would love to bring home to people is someone comes in and they've been on a regimen for a while and they've done well on that regimen. And then you look at, oh, preferred, it's not on the preferred list. That's for naive patients. Do not change a regimen that is working well. Right. And um, we I often will get patients whose docs have just changed them and they're suffering. And it's like, and I then have to go back and say, you know what, we really could go back to the one that was working for you. But my doctor, my doctor I've had for 10 years, he told me, no, this wasn't safe. And it was like, how do I undo this? And so sometimes I'll just say, okay, let's wait till beyond the first trimester. And then you can go back. So let's go through this a little bit more. Let's say okay. the patient comes to you already on Cobicystat. Okay. Curveball. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, no, no. That's fine. And so that's another, that's a great shared decision-making um, situation. And I think there's, again, there's a spectrum in terms of how clinicians deal with this. And we know that the levels of drug with, that are um, associated with Cobicystat are lower in the third trimester. And sometimes it is clinically relevant and sometimes it's not. And so if somebody, for me, if somebody is stable on something with Cobicystat, um, I will say to the patient, here, this is where we are. We may, if you want to stay on, which is fine with me, um, we will just check your viral load a little more often, probably monthly um, during your second, third trimester. Um, if you say, mm, 
no, I'm, you know, I don't care. Then, you know, or I don't want to have to deal with all that. Then we might switch them. And so I think um, there are some docs who will switch people just pretty automatically early on. We have tended to say, I don't want to rock the boat. This is working well. And I've had patients, I'd probably say majority have gone, sailed through without any change in viral load. I've had a handful where we, you know, we see a, a, the viral load starting to creep up. I had one now that patients can see their results often before I can, um, you know, patient calling me saying, I think we need to change. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, so We've got a few more cases. I just want to make a few other points and we might move on from the topic. Number one, Afavirin's had the same problem with neural tube defects as Dalyutegravir did several years ago. It seems to be related to folate. So I think every woman who's pregnant ought to be on folate. Do you agree? Uh, yes, but but realize that they really needed to be on folate before they got pregnant. Right. right? Okay. Because the so neural, the neural what, tube is fully formed by six weeks from last menstrual period. That's and that's when most women find out they're pregnant. Yeah. And so, then when you, when you use a multivitamin, one of the questions that came up, can you use an integrase inhibitor and still use a multi? Yes, you can separate them about 12 hours. And that usually gets around the problem. Steve. Can I ask you about the, since we're rolling out uh, uh, Cab LA, Ropivirine, if, if a woman is pregnant and con uh, well, controlled and becomes pregnant, what is your approach there? So we're waiting for that case. And this is the whole, the entire perinatal um, guidelines panel has been debating this and struggling with it. And there's been a movement toward, oh, I would switch them. But then somebody else says, but but the effects of this are lasting for so long. Are we then are we putting them on a double regimen? And I think we're going to move toward stay on and see what happens, but we don't know. And that's a great question. And we know it's coming this year. Yeah. And the thing to watch therefore is if it's not injectable or whatever that uh, fan acids are going to be used or H2 blockers, proton pump inhibitors, and the ropivirine gets into trouble a little bit. Okay, uh, the great discussion, thank you. And the, someone asked on the thing about TAF, yes, TAF is actually in one of the studies viewed to be um, get the nod over TDF in this setting. So TAF, FTC, dolutegravir, or TAF, 3TC, dolutegravir, what you can get as a single dose tablet in Sub-Saharan Africa and other places is a Great thing. And by the way, the cost of that, of, of, of sort of TDF, 3TC, Dalutegravir internationally, one tablet once a day for a year is about $30. I'll let you think about that. <laughs> okay. How do I simplify a complex regimen? This is something we see a lot of. Uh, it's a complex stem here, but basically 24 years ago diagnosed started on a bunch of different regimens, now is on dolutegravir, boosted darunavir, TAF, FTC, and you don't have access to resistance data. Everyone ever seen a case like this? Mm-hmm, yeah, we do. So would you stay the course and not change the regimen or could you simplify to dolutegravir or bictegravir um, or some other boosted protease? Go ahead and vote. And this is pretty complicated. Uh, I can make it more interesting and say the patient's tired of taking a, a handful of pills for breakfast every day and would like something simpler. So let's see what the group wants to do. So a lot of people would change. Um, 
Steve, let me go to you on this. What would you do? Yeah, well, this sounds a little bit like a confession, but we, we have used archive genotyping in this setting to kind of look and see if, uh, if there's a lot of NRTI resistance or something else that might, um, might uh, help uh, make a decision. I, I say it's kind of a confession because we don't really have, you know, clinical trial data that shows the benefit of the approach, but it, it seems intuitively to be a good tool. And so I might use that information to help simplify. Jill? Um, <clears throat> I agree with Steve. Uh, I also think, could you go back to his, uh, to the regimen again? Sure. I, oh, yeah. So I think what we were seeing a lot of uh, several years ago was the switch to um, the newer integrase inhibitors um, as the backbone. And we didn't, um, we didn't have as much confidence with them um, in terms of their ability to suppress. And we were adding frequently a protease inhibitor on top of it. Um, and I think we saw that a lot several years ago. And now that we know that we have um, Valutegravir and Bictegravir, which both have, you know, really low barrier to resistance, or high, I'm sorry, high barrier to resistance, um, and are really effective at bringing down the viral load, I think we've realized that we don't necessarily need that protease inhibitor anymore. Um, and I, I think, yes, I probably would do the archive genotype, but in some cases, I'd probably just take it away. I think what we're learning is that once someone's fully suppressed and doing well, it's a different story than when they have a very high viral load and you're trying to get it down. And their archive resistance may play more of a role. But once you have it under control, it's good. There's also a lot of data now that show if there's just an M184V, don't sweat it. I mean, you might want to think about that a little bit more with Dalutegravir 3TC only, uh, although there's some data coming out uh, potentially at this or future conferences like ID Week um, that may show that's okay. I personally am a little bit uncomfortable with that. If I know there's a M184V in the history, uh, I might lean away and go more of a traditional three drug regimen. Um, but I think it's worth a try. But this is where open discussion is important and a little bit more frequent monitoring because you don't want, if there's gonna be virologic failure, you don't want it to happen and then not see them again for six months. Uh, Steve? Yeah, I mean, the Dalyotegravir is obviously a new class of drugs, so really the key here is whether uh, tenofovir is still effective. And so provided, you know, that that person was undetectable through the other TDF-containing regimens, then it probably is still intact, and then probably the simplification will work. So there's a question just in follow-up here with ropivirine. If they're on an injectable ropivirine, does it matter what's going on in the stomach? And the answer is no, they can be on PPS because the interference is with absorption from the gut and if they're going direct into the buttock, then that's not an issue. Okay, what do I do with a patient with persistent detectable viremia, which is about 10 to 15% of my patients? Um, so this is the same kind of guy more or less and uh, he's on Dalutegravir boosted Darunavir 3TC. Um, and the viral load you'll notice is 85 and his viral is six months ago was 62 and he's never really been below 50, but he's never been above hundred kind of percolating for years. What is this? Should you change his therapy? Yes, no, not sure. Go ahead and vote.
Jason, I'll go to you on this one. Uh, let's see what the audience says. All right, more about two thirds say no. What do you say, Jason? Well, I think we all want to achieve that perfect threshold of viral suppression, right? Um, I'm not overly concerned about this patient in terms of you know immunologic decline, but I am concerned about ongoing immunologic activation and what's causing that. So he's got clearly cir circulating and replicating virus. Um, below the threshold that should be transmissible if we're worried about potential transmission. So we're not really worried about, you know, any kind of break in U equals U uh, principles. Um, so I, again, I think it's a, it's a process of shared decision-making. I've had several cases that we've done ultra sequencing by Bob Silicano in these circumstances yeah. to look and see if we can uncover any, you know, hidden mutations. And ultimately that's, you know, a fool's errand typically when we try to do that. Right. So I think that the, the, key to this question is in the initial viral load of not, almost a million. And what that correlates to is a much larger, and Bob Silicano would back this up, a much larger reservoir of latently infected cells. And if you go forward to this biology picture, the antiretroviral therapy kind of operates in that lower right quadrant by blocking the infection of new cells. And that pretty much is 100% with good regimens. It's the upper right with those latently infected cells, a reservoir that can be spitting out virus periodically just on stimulation. And if you have more of them, because the viral load at baseline was very high, that spitting out is just more prevalent. And so it just spills into the bloodstream where you can detect it. It doesn't mean that the antiretroviral therapy in the bottom right on this slide is failing. So the way we know that is partly from the data that Jason said and partly from studies that show that if you add more drugs on the viral load doesn't budge it stays right at 60 or 70. Connie. I was just going to make that last point building on this concept is there have probably been no fewer than 20 clinical trials attempting to eliminate the low-level persistent viremia by adding or adding some immune response modifier or something else. All of them have failed so right as long as the patient has a good immune recovery and stays in that stable range, adding or intensifying therapy does nothing. So that's two fool's errands on this right. conversation. All right, so now to your point, what about the CD4 count that doesn't respond? Anybody had a case like that? All right, here we go. So this is a 30 year old lady, started on pretty good regimen four years ago. Initial viral load was 78,000. She came down nicely. The CD4 count over four years has only gone from 80 to 167. Anybody seen a case like this? Yeah, I think we all have, many of them actually. What is going on here? So is this a failure of a regimen where you would change to some new NRTI or a new PI or an integrase or maybe even add IL-2? <laughs> Remember that? Hey, okay. Go ahead and vote. Yves uh, Levy from France did that study. Um, oh boy. Did increase the CD4 count. Uh, let's see what we got. All right, so most people would stay the course and um, I don't know if we need to, to go on a whole lot further. Um, any comment? Well, I think just make the, the point that, that people with a CD4 count in the hundreds that have a suppressed viral RNA 
have a much lower event rate of like an opportunistic infection than somebody who's got the same CD4 count and is not on antiretroviral therapy. So I use that as a reassuring kind of discussion with, with uh, patients. And people that start out with really low CD4 counts are at risk for not completely recovering their CD4 count. Connie. And just from the clinical trials perspective, this concept has also been attempted with intensifying therapy, changing therapy, adding therapy, and it has had no appreciable effect. Yeah. Maybe with the exception of IL-2, which you're only treating yourself with. But the, uh, I think the point here, though, there is a study that I was involved in that looked at the trajectory of increase in CD4 count over time. There have been a couple of these studies where people who started very low had an increase and they continue to increase over time. The one I was involved in looked at six years out in the alert cohort and they eventually do have a rise in their CD4 count. It just that group of individuals very low CD4 counts takes them a lot longer to get there yep. than people who've not had that low CD4 count for as long. So this is a diagram describing, so the green lines are what you normally see. Viral load drops dramatically and the CD4 count, especially in the first six weeks, really goes up. These folks, like Connie's mentioning, sometimes they didn't get that bump. But if you, I didn't draw it great, but the slope of the line at two, three, four years is roughly the same between the green and the yellow here. So that's a different type of CD4 count regeneration or recovery, which is really slow. There were studies of rheumatoid arthritis in the 1990s where they used a monoclonal against CD4 to treat. And one dose knocked it down, but then it came back. They gave two or three doses, they knocked it down and it didn't just come right back. And it looked just like that yellow line slope and coming back. So it's like, that's the, that's the replenishment. And I'm pretty confident without a whole lot of strong data that that first bump is really release of CD4 cells from lymphoid tissue that's attracted there and trapped there because of ongoing replication in the lymphatic tissue and elaboration of adhesion molecules like ICAM and VCAM. You stop the replication, that elaboration of the adhesion molecules drops and you get like a redistribution of sorts that didn't happen in our patient and about, I don't know, again, 10 to 15% of people, maybe a little less, don't have that experience. Okay, so this is the last question. Um, we'll get to the, the, the questions from the audience here. We, we can do this pretty quick. How do I manage uh, someone who has frequent STIs? Anybody seen a patient like this? Whew. Like every clinic, 35-year-old um, guy followed by you, uh, doing well with HIV, takes his medicines on BICTAF FTC, and he has a new STI about every six to 12 weeks. And it's almost like he just walks in and before you can examine, he just drops his pants and bends over. And, and you know, he, he knows what's going to happen. Uh, test him, and sometimes it's two, sometimes he gets the trifecta with all three, um, and we're just constantly repeating. So the question here is, um, you're going to counsel him each time and say, you know, not going to do it, just, you know, but he's going to do it. Offer amoxicillin or doxy or suffixime uh, uh, after each sexual encounter. Um, go ahead and vote. Let's see what the audience wants to do. You've seen some data on this already. A little bit of controversy here. 
All right, let's see what we got. All right, 77%. Wow. And what are the data to support this in treated patients? There ain't any data yet. What's the concern? Resistance, right? I mean, GC, it's, it doesn't mess around. Um, it's going to get resistant to most anything. So, Jill, what do you think? I mean, this is you ever seen a case like this? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just like so, what do you do? Five on Friday. Um, well, first of all, with someone who is coming back with um, STIs over and over again, I absolutely want to make sure that their partners are getting treated. Um, and I think that's a part that sometimes we forget about or we don't think about the same way. Um, and when we say, you know, expedited partner therapy, and we say, you know, I'll send you an extra uh, seven days of doxycycline, well, it actually might be an extra seven times six, you know, yeah. how many partners do you actually have that we're talking about? So I think that's really important. Sometimes you'll see that, um, you know, I think A is a totally reasonable way to do it. Just keep having the person come back. I have been giving patients um, take home swabs so that if something does arise, they're symptomatic, they can do the swabs without actually having to come and make an appointment. And then we'll see what the results are. I've, I've now done the Doxy 200 once, and it was a long conversation with the patient about the fact that it's not, you know, it's a, just based on some very minimal data right now, um, but it is impressive data. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the fact that you see reductions in all of the STIs. Right. So anyway, so I haven't been doing it that much. We have studies ongoing with this, I think. Is that right? Um, yes, yeah, bigger yeah. studies. Yeah. But there, but there is the doxy prep. Right, doxy study. prep. Yeah, for prep. Yeah, yeah. that for sure. Oh, well, but it included there were people living with HIV in that study as well. Okay. Yeah, Good. the reductions are really phenomenal and surprisingly big reductions in in gonorrhea as well, which you wouldn't necessarily have thought. Syphilis right. and chlamydia makes sense, but. Okay, so the answer is there are no data yet. Extrapolate from prep the French study. Maybe it would work. Concern about resistance. Um, but it's really a harm reduction question. And the question is, what's a long-term harm? And we don't know. So if you go that route, which I actually did in one patient, it made me nervous. Um, but he actually asked for it because he had noticed it in the, in the literature, you know, of what he was reading. And I had trouble just absolutely saying no. And he was literally coming in about every six to eight weeks. Um, okay, let's see about some final questions here. Um, on the chronic low-level viremia, despite H, uh, art therapy, sub-Q-Linacaprevir, um, yeah. once approved, I, I think it goes back to the story that Connie said, that when you keep adding drugs, it's, it's biologically not what's going on. So I don't think that would necessarily help. Yeah, concern about resistance, absolutely, for doxycycline. Uh, we have to just wait and see, and we might uh, get into trouble with that, which is why I think we all need to be uncomfortable even if you decide to do it. Um, how much does age play in immune reconstitution? Yeah. We were talking to each other. Oh, that's all right. No, it's just, that's okay. Talk amongst yourselves. Here's a number. Here's a question. Rhode Island, it's neither a road nor an island. Discuss. Um, so approach, so the, the yes, immune, everything gets slower and doesn't work as well as you get older in general. Um, that's a good thing to say. No, no, I think there's some clinical data that, that older people have, have more trouble recovering their CD4 count. Yeah. If they have CD4 depletion. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay, and then the last question here. Um, should viral load less than 200 be considered viral suppression by definition, given current uh, commentary on U equals U? I mean, Jason, you've been at Hop, you're at Hopkins. A lot of the studies, uh, Tom Quinn and Rakai back in 2000 showed if they were in the lower group of viral load less than 1,000, there yeah. wasn't transmission, right? That's right. So that okay. was the first hint that U equals U was happening. Um, 200 is a good number for viral load for not transmitting. I think we can agree on that. But once you get above 150, I start worrying about, is there a problem with absorption? Is there a problem with adherence? Uh, again, for blips and for low-level viremia, somewhere between 50 and 120, 50 and 150, you start getting close to 200, you should start questioning whether the ARV has got a kink in the armor in some way. This was a fabulous discussion. Thank you all very much. Thanks for the questions. I think it made it go a little faster. And I will turn the podium back over to Dr. Cheever. Thank you, guys. I just want to make one comment because pregnancy can be very terrifying to people who don't usually take care of pregnant people. And um, there is a 24-7 perinatal hotline out of UCSF called the National Clinician Consultation Center. And three in the morning, you can call and you get a real human being. And they welcome questions. They're paid to get their questions. So don't be afraid that they're going to think this is a stupid question. But it is one of the most wonderful services. And, and I, even though I, I am one of their consultants, I sometimes call because I just need another brain to bounce off of. Like My patient doesn't fit in any of these guideline descriptions. And so to know that you always have a backup. And it is a really, I think, a wonderful service. Thanks. Thank you all again.